Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. This week, we are joined by George Gray Molina, Chief Economist at the UNDP's Global Policy Bureau. I'm talking with George after his appearance in the CID speaker series at the Harvard Kennedy School on October 9th, 2020. George, thank you for joining us here. My first question relates to, you know, something the UNDP has been in the news for recently and was also the subject of your talk today. So the UNDP has recently proposed a temporary basic income for all poor and vulnerable people in the developing world. In a recent interview, you call this a Marshall Plan for the people. Tell us a little more about this. Thank you so much, Rohan, and thank you, everyone. Well, what I would start by saying is that these are very unusual times. So the COVID crisis has sparked and has catalyzed a lot of innovative work around the world. What we did at UNDP was to think about, well, you know, 130 countries are already implementing income support measures. Some of those running through unemployment insurance schemes, some of them running through furlough schemes, and others just running through emergency cash transfers. So what we wanted to focus on is what would this look like for developing countries that have mostly informal sector workers that don't have access to social protection. So when we did the simulations, when we did the numbers, what we found is that a temporary basic income, a basic income guarantee for all people above the poverty line is within reach. It's a large number. It's about 1.6% of developing country GDP, which is large. But we know that during the COVID period, developing countries have repurposed between 2 and 4% of their GDP already. And advanced economies, of course, have done much more, order of magnitude of 10 or 12% of fiscal stimulus. So when we talk about the idea of a Marshall Plan, it's about sustaining the income drop that is happening around the world because of the response to COVID, because of the need for a lockdown or partial lockdown, even for the poorest economies, even for the most informal economies. So that was sort of the intent and what we're seeing over the past few months is how that's playing out over the world. Thank you. I have two questions related to you know, the various implementation and administrative challenges in making this really lofty goal possible. You know, one obvious aspect is financing, something you touched on as well, you know, when you talked about this costing about 1.6% of developing country GDP. The Economist recently reported that, you know, poor countries spent just $4 ahead on programs to help the poor during the COVID-19 crisis, compared with an average of $695 per head in rich countries like the UK, France, and the US. How do we bridge this gap? And, you know, especially when we try to bring about the kind of program you're talking about, this almost seems insurmountable. That's a very good question. I think within the UN, what we've been doing is following the discussion at the global level. And as you know, the G20, the 20 largest economies of the world have come together and have advocated a debt suspension initiative for the 71 poorest countries of the world, which is very good. It's a very strong initiative. And it will release about $15 billion for those poorest economies of the world to be able to attend to things like income support. But the UN Secretary General has been asking and pleading for countries to think about all middle-income countries, all small island developing states, and all creditors, not just the official bilateral creditors, but also the private creditors. Because a debt suspension, a debt moratoria, is just calling it 
quits for six months or for 12 months to allow a country, rather than repay debt, use those monies for income support. And just as a benchmark, developing countries will be paying $3.1 trillion in debt service this year to private and to public creditors. Now, we're not saying debt relief in the sense of not paying debt, but just suspending that for 12 months, in this case, until the end of 2021. We believe that will give most of the developing world the breathing space it needs, not just for a TBI, which is needed, but for other measures on the health side and also on small and medium enterprise, which are badly needed. So that's sort of the scope of the challenge. And we think that that agenda is still on the table. We know that the G20 will be meeting over the next few weeks, and that's part of the global discussion. And when you say debt relief for the next 12 months, is there an underlying assumption that, you know, the developing economies will be back on track in 12 months and will be ready to gain momentum again? Well, what we've heard from, from our colleagues from the World Health Organization and from the COVAX initiative is that the idea is to have vaccinations ready by the end of 2021. So that's 2 billion vaccines by the end of 2021. So that's sort of our horizon. We think that a full reopening of economies in the developing world is probably not going to happen until you get that full vaccination effect. So we'll be playing out, if you will, a W over the next few months, all the way into the end of 2021, regardless of what is happening with the advanced economies. So thinking about the developing economies, we need to focus on that long span. So with that in mind, we think that things like this, a temporary suspension of debt payment could be useful because it will liberate resources that are already in countries and they don't require north to south transfers. It's just using existing tax resources to repurpose for income support and other forms of support. So we, we see that is still feasible, it's within reach, and it's something that we need to contemplate to the extent that we know that many countries already face big debt challenges, both public and private. And even before COVID, many countries, about 50 countries is the estimate from the IMF, were already close to debt distress. So that's gonna get worse to the extent that we have very negative income growth and we have a drop in tax revenues and we have a drop in oil prices and we have a drop in commodity prices, all of which are associated with the capacity of a developing country to have fiscal wherewithal, fiscal space. Apart from the financing, another gap is obviously the institutional realities of developing economies. Governments may lack data to identify and target appropriately. And in addition, you know, there are other estimates that suggest about 7 billion people globally lack access to formal banking services. In this context, how do we you know, address these institutional challenges to be able to make you know, what the UNDP is recommending possible? Yeah, what we've seen is that countries have responded very quickly during April and March during the crisis and expanding existing cash transfer administrative registries because that's how this works. People need to have a national ID. They need to be registered in some sort of administrative registry and there's gotta be some payment mechanism. So. Th those three critical elements were missing in many, many countries. So you see examples coming from Brazil, from Pakistan, from Mexico, from Togo, from Tuvalu, from many countries around the world that expanded the registries very quickly. Now, there is a cost to expanding very quickly is that you may have many inclusion and exclusion errors. So people who shouldn't be getting a payment will be getting one and people who should be getting it won't be getting it. And that's part of what many countries are trying to figure out right now. We do think that there is a tremendous shift 
in the way that digital tools, I'm speaking of SMS self-registration in Togo, or talking biometric registration in Indonesia, or talking about digital payments in Colombia, or mobile money in Haiti, we're seeing a revolution in, in digital disruption on income support and payments, which maybe if this happened 10 years ago, we would be back to the old cash transfer mechanism using census data, and it would take us months, if not years, to find those populations. As promising as some of these changes seem, I'm wondering if we have the time right now, given that you know, we're fighting an you know, urgent scenario situation, to also be thinking about the privacy concerns that come with having access to these data. As a development practitioner in an international organization, how much is that also on your agenda? Yes, that, that is an important issue of concern, and that's something that we've been doing and, and discussing with countries over the past five to 10 years. Most countries, as they expand and they create an administrative registry with different types of data, you know, everything from geolocation to what your income is, as you do that, you need to have in place legal securities that will protect the citizen from the misuse of that data. And many countries have been expanding and using sort of prototypes of privacy legislation. But I know that that's probably not enough because we know that technology is accelerating quicker than the legislation is. So we also need to have a conversation about the big digital companies and what their responsibility is. And that's in fact also an issue that the United Nations ha has been discussing and has been advocating for to thinking about full accountability in the developing world with respect to privacy. That's an ongoing discussion. That's something that UNDP is involved in and also the UN in general. And I think it's gonna be with us for the next, for the foreseeable future. But I wouldn't discount the power of technology and, and our capacity to regulate it and to use it for purposes that are, that are useful for development. Well, speaking of things that are going to be on our agenda for the foreseeable future, I have to talk about what the crisis means for the way we think about economic growth and development more generally. And this is, I think in many ways, probably the most fundamental question. In so many ways, COVID-19 has revealed a variety of fault lines with our economic and development paradigm. You've been writing about these challenges for a while now. For instance, in 2013, you wrote about the labor market challenges that have caused the decline in income inequality in South America to begin to stagnate. How do we come out of COVID-19 stronger? How do we build back economies and create a new paradigm of shared prosperity? And I know this isn't you know, an easy question to answer. This is about you know, restructuring so many of the fundamentals. But what are some of your initial thoughts? Yeah, I think these are great questions. I think as we look, as we tell the story of income and poverty convergence over the past 30 years, we usually tell the story of convergence, of developing countries converging to rich economies based on the rate and speed of income generation. But since the past five or 10 years, I think we need to rethink that model because the convergence model is based on the dynamics of economic growth and then compensation mechanisms for things like inequality and climate change. I think that we need to bring in into the economic growth model some of the, the major concerns that have to do with climate change and inequality. So decoupling economic growth from carbon emissions, it's gotta be inside the motor, if you will, of economic growth in the energy transition, in the transportation sector, in, in urban infrastructure and in solar and wind power. And then we also have to think about 
what are the levers that redistribute within the labor market? And that's a tricky one because the literature that we've seen is that this has to do with the returns to education and the returns to education are always in a race with technology. In some moments, you, you find that the labor market tightens, but it tightens for non-skilled labor. And then you get, of course, a reduction in poverty, which is a good thing. But that tightening of the labor market and those flattened education returns means that as you grow, as you become more productive, as you become more dynamic, you won't be able to see much more growth. You'll see diverging growth, unequal growth, if you will. So we're sort of caught in a trap of thinking about how do we think about the labor market that equalizes and how do we think about economic decoupling from carbon emissions happening at the same time. And we need to compress time. We can't wait decades for this to happen. It needs to happen over the next decade. So I think that's on the agenda of most countries, uh, of every country in the world. At the UN, we're thinking about sequences. So our own thought is that you need to have a strategy in place for the transition, for the great transition of economies decoupling from carbon emissions. And it's got to be fair. It's got to be based on the people. And we've already seen people on the streets in France, we've seen them in Chile, we've seen it in many countries. As soon as you touch a fossil fuel subsidy or you increase a carbon tax, you'll see the effects it has on the ordinary citizen. And we want to, we want to avoid that. We have to think about what is a fair transition look like? What does it mean for people who are under the poverty line or close to the poverty line or even in the middle classes of developing countries? I think that's still on the agenda and it's an exciting development agenda for those who are, are just getting started or are in the middle of their career right now facing these issues. Now, this is obviously a deeply existential moment for most of us that work in development and you know, policy. In line with this, how has the pandemic made you think about your own you know, personal role in working in global development? And then also, what has it made you think about the role of an international organization such as the UNDP? I think that's a wonderful question as well. I think I've been very proud to work with the UN. As my own boss has said a few weeks ago, there's sort of two UNs that are sort of coexisting right now. One is the operational UN that's on the ground. You know, the World Food Program just received the Peace Nobel Prize today. And that's telling us something about how certain operational units and agencies and funds within the UN are doing good work on the ground. And then there's sort of the political UN as well, you know, the Security Council, and it's mired in politics and, and a lack of consensus. So that's the cards that we've been dealt. Myself as a development practitioner, I think this is some of the most exciting times because I think most of the time we think of development as slow and cumulative, and we see the effects over decades. But sometimes, once in a while, that window of opportunity opens. And I think that COVID, despite the disaster that it does provoke, it is opening up a lot of constraints. And these constraints are allowing us to think about development in a new way, maybe not as a ladder, you know, going from low to high, but maybe thinking about a circle with thresholds in which we have resilience in the middle. And the thresholds are about planetary boundaries and are about human rights. So I think this is a great moment for reimagining what we're doing in development. And I'm from the South. I'm originally from Bolivia, from South America, but I'm proud to be in a place in which I can look at what's happening in Africa and Asia and the Middle East and learn from our experiences and also give back as well from my own cosmopolitan view, the way I'm, I'm looking at things across the globe. Thank you, George. That's incredibly helpful to hear. And thank you also for taking out time to talk with us today. You can follow George on Twitter at G. Molina. 
You can also learn more about the Center for International Development and CID's research events and upcoming speaker series lectures at cid.harvard.edu. Thank you for listening and we'll see you back next week.